I don't know about you, but um, there seems to be nothing more painful than rejection. Especially when you've been kicked to the curb by your own family or a close friend or perhaps even a spouse. I mean, let's be honest, being rejected uh, is the kind of emotional pain that, that zaps all of your confidence. It's hard to, to even function. It's like the grief that, that, that never really subsides. You start to look at everything through a different set of lenses. If there's someone's opinion that we value above all else, it seems to be the people who are closest to us, right? Who know us best. I know that early on in my ministry, right at 15 years ago, I was uh, betrayed and rejected by my own worship leader and by a very good friend and fellow Dallas Seminary grad who was a member of this church. Both of them conspired to take over the church. They did not succeed, but ended up taking 50 people with, with them. And as a brand new senior pastor, having only been here a year and a half, been through a sweet honeymoon season, it shook me to my core. I lost so much confidence in the subsequent months. I, I literally remember one Sunday being grateful that I was wearing pleated slacks because my knees were shaking so bad while I preached. Rejection has a tendency to shake our confidence. And yet, rejection is part and parcel of the Christian life. It's much of what it means to follow Christ. So the question I want to pose before us this morning as we look at this text is, how do we have confidence in rejection? And when I mean by rejection, I'm talking about rejection where where you're not at fault, but you have been canceled, to use a modern-day term. How do you maintain a proper perspective? How do you function with strength so that it doesn't take you out at the knees? How do we spiritually keep from crawling into a hole? I'm not just talking about muscling through it. I'm not just talking about you know, lifting yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm talking about being able, in the midst of rejection, being able to confidently move forward, rise to the occasion, knowing that God has left you to be a tool in the instrument, as an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And that part of that rejection is to set you on a course for Great Commission work. That, that's a tall order. I don't know about you. If I had just stopped with how, how do we get over rejection? How do we muscle through rejection? How do we endure rejection? I think everyone would have thought, well, that's good, you know. But Scripture talks about going well beyond that. How do you operate confidently, purposefully, realizing God has left us here for a reason? Well, that's what the preacher, in writing to the the church in the book of Hebrews is talking about today. They have experienced rejection from all sides. Rejection from the world, rejection from their family and friends, their synagogue, the Jewish quarter. And yet he does not want them to just survive. He wants them to thrive. Would you pray with me, and we'll learn from this text? Gracious Father, we thank you that we can gather together, and we can drink deeply from your word. We thank you that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that he will illuminate his word in our minds and give us an understanding, an understanding that equips the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Christ, to do great commission, commission work, to help people to know Jesus Christ and grow to be like Him. Lord, we've understood this purpose when we've been at, our, been at our high points, when we've just come to Christ. 
when there's wind in our sails. But Lord, when we are rejected, it is hard to see how we can be useful tools. It is hard to see how you would want to use us at all for Great Commission work. And frankly, humanly, Lord, it's hard to see why we would want to. And that reflects upon us and our weak faith and our misunderstanding of rejection and our misunderstanding of significance. And so, Lord, we need you this morning. We need you desperately. We need your word to speak to us. We need your word to help us inform how we feel, not just how we think. And so, Father, we confidently ask that you will do what we cannot do through our own, what no secular psychology or counseling will do, what no self-help book will do, but only the Word of God can do in shaping men's hearts. And so we are excited to learn. We're excited to be transformed. As we're coming off of these Christmas carols and hymns, we are excited to worship the King of Kings, for we know that it is only by His person and His work that we are here today, standing before you righteous, justified, clothed in the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not see judgment, and we have eternal communion our Lord Jesus Christ to look forward to. But until then, even amid rejection, equip us, encourage us, help us to see clearly not only how we should think, but how we should feel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look with me, if you will, chapter 11, and we've been in verse 32 for quite a while. In fact, we've had a few sermons based upon one word each, one name. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones ain't got nothing on me. I think he spent 14 years in the book of Romans. We had just about completed Hebrews, and now we've slowed to a crawl. But I think it's important. Give me a show of hands. How many of us have ever heard a sermon on Jephthah? Really? It's not all over the radio, podcasts. Well, look at verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. We can't skip Jephthah. You're going to meet Jephthah in heaven one day. And he's going to ask you, what was your favorite series at Metro Bible? <laughs> and you're going to say, oh, I love the book of Hebrews. He says, really? Did you like chapter 11? Oh, man, the hall of faith was great. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Jephthah. If you say who? It will not be because I haven't equipped you. <laughs> Jephthah. We're taking this in four sections today. Four sections out of one word. I'll explain in just a minute. Confidence amid inside rejection. Inside rejection. Family, friends, church, community of believers. Confidence amid outside persecution. Confidence, again, amid outside persecution. There's a little bit of an aside in here. Number three, carelessness amid confidence. Carelessness amid confidence. And then we will close it out with confidence amid inside persecution. Turn to Judges chapter 11, if you will. Let's look at this fellow named Jephthah. Judges. We've been learning our books of the Bible, right? Genesis, say it with me. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 
here we go, chapter 11. Jephthah, the ninth judge. Look back one verse, chapter 10, verse 18, the last verse there. It says, The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And that sets the stage. So the people of Gilead are asking the question, who's God going to raise up now? Because every time we mess it up, every time we fall into sin, God sells us into slavery. We're oppressed by people. We cry out for His help and repentance. And He sends us a Savior, a judge. They at least have confidence that God is good, don't they? Who is God going to raise up this time? Will he be a prince? A blue blood? Perhaps a great statesman? Maybe a warrior? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior. So far, so good. But he was the son of a harlot. Yeah, that kind of hurts. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. The valiant warrior thing, yeah, I mean, you know, if they're looking at resumes, whoo, top of the list. This guy's looking good. But an illegitimate boy, the son of a prostitute in a family full of heirs, that resume kind of goes to the bottom of the stack, doesn't it? Have you ever felt like you were paying for your parents' sins? I think that's what Jephthah felt like. Look at verse 2. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And he's punished for no sin of his own, but for the sin of his parents. Rejection. Painful, painful rejection. Most likely, his father treated him as he did all of his other sons. He grew up and had the same experiences. They celebrated holidays together. They took vacations together. They worked in the family business. But one day when he was an adult, they had a family meeting. And the brothers took over and they said, Yeah, you, out of here. You're gone. Rejection. Side note here, can you think of another Savior whose legitimacy was questioned, and who was despised and forsaken by his own. So in verse 3, he fled, and he went to the land of Tob. And it says, And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah. Worthless fellows. Why? Because that's who lives in Tob. Worthless. I mean, the whole subdivision is full of worthless Fellows, you got to realize that Tob is outside of Israel. It's Gentile country. Now, this is interesting because if you're reading the book of Judges around the time of David, this sounds unusually familiar. Remember when David was run out of the royal house of Saul? 1 Samuel chapter 22 says, And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt... And everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Worthless fellows. Worthless fellows. David even goes to Philistine territory outside the land of Israel. Jephthah goes to Tob. And it's where worthless fellows are. Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Rejected by his own goes to the land of the Gentiles and worthless fellows. Does God use formerly worthless fellows? He does. He does. But the story doesn't end there because Israel finds itself in a pinch. Look at verse 5. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, come on back. You got a home. Be our chief and help us fight against the sons of Ammon. What do you think Jephthah felt like? been run out of town, rejected by my family. Don't just think rejected by my family. Think also friends, okay? And now the elders say, hey, we need some help. 
You're a valiant warrior. Jephthah's name means open. And God's going to use him to open a door to save Israel, open a way of escape. And they offer him a military command. Hey, we're going to make you, right off the bat, without any formal military training, a commissioned officer, four-star general. Look at this uniform we have for you. Ribbons are already on it. Just come on back. You'll have a package, a house, your own chariot. We are going to set you up. And you can come and be our chief. Remember the old Rambo movies? Not, not the one where Sylvester Stallone is 80, but the old ones, when he's like 30, you know? The first one opens up, he's in a prison camp busting rocks. He's in a rock quarry, and his old CO shows up and says, John, we're in a pinch, we need you. We need you back on the field, we need you to come help us. And he's like, whoa, you put me here. I was rejected by my own people, by the military. I'm not going to be your genie that you could just come rub the lamp when you need me and then put me back when you don't. No, no, no. There's got to be more in it for me. Verse 9, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? I don't want to be just your savior. I want to be your master. I want to be your Lord. I want to be your head. Now, I want you to think about this. There's no way that Jephthah could have planned this. His rejection, I mean. And it should have thrown him under the bus for good. And yet it was through this rejection that God planted his feet on a new path. A new path of significance, of kingdom-advancing, kingdom-saving work. You see, we have to see the rejection, especially when our hands are clean, okay? I'm not talking about collateral damage that we bring upon ourselves from our own sin, but I'm talking about rejection for following Christ, rejection for doing what is right, that when we are rejected, we can't say God was asleep at the wheel. No, God is either sovereign and good, or he's not. They go together. And it is this rejection that becomes the catalyst for a new path. A new path where he uses him mightily. Had he not been rejected, he would not have been used. Keep that in mind here. And this is exactly what this little Hebrew church needs to hear. Remember, they're willfully putting their fingers in their ears, distancing themselves, drifting away, thinking that if I could just avoid the pain it'll get better. And it's almost like this preacher is saying, no, 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 no. The very rejection you're experiencing needs to fuel your significance in Great Commission work. You need to realize that God didn't just allow this rejection, He has ordained it. And it is this rejection that will make you useful. It starts to come together here. Because otherwise, why would this preacher use Jephthah? He's got plenty of valiant warriors out there. He's got the Davids. He's got the Gideons. He's got Jephthah here for a reason. And I think it's the rejection factor. I mean, we know this intrinsically. If you're a believer here today, you know. If you've, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that the very family and friends that reject you that they come to you when they hit bottom because they know you have the truth. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When you do the right thing and you stand up for what is right and no one else in your family is willing to do it and you become the black sheep, you take the beating for it. You take it knowing that God provided it. Don't lick your wounds, don't crawl into a hole because a time will come not every time, but oftentimes. A time will come when that person hits bottom. And they don't go back to the rest of their family that gave them a pass. They come back to you. When they're in the hole and they start to smell the stench of death, they go find the guy with the truth. And you don't pat yourself on the back then either. 
You just realized I was used by God as a tool then when I was rejected and now when I'm needed. Right? And you say, but whoa, pastor, I hear what you're saying and that's great theology, but it hurts. Can I get an amen there? Rejection stings so much. I'd rather you cut off my arm. I imagine these first century readers reading the book of Hebrews saying, Look, Hebrew preacher, I appreciate all this great doctrine. I appreciate the catechism of the first ten chapters. But do you know what it feels like to be rejected? And I can imagine coming through the pages hearing, I do. And so does Jesus Christ. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Luke 6, takes it a step further. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed? You know, I, I can kind of handle the first one, the John 15. Okay, hated Jesus. Probably going to hate Jesus' followers. That makes sense. But, but blessed? Are Christians some kind of sickos that they like pain? That we should be blessed? No, that's not what it's saying. We are blessed because we get to be His representatives here on earth. We are blessed in that we get to identify with Christ and, and, and wear even the world's shame as, as a badge of honor. But you know what? We're also practically blessed because when that person comes back to you, you get to share with them the very good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that someone was willing to share with us. And we are blessed in that we get to take part in the advancement of God's kingdom one soul at a time. We, like Jephthah, get to open a way of escape and they escape judgment and are brought into fellowship. How did that come about? Because God used rejection of his representatives to bring about redemption. The preacher is saying, hey, I, I, I need y'all to have a little perspective. I understand it hurts, but I need you to, to take a step back. Raise your eyes a little bit. See the big picture. Have a bigger picture perspective. Have a little spiritual confidence like Jephthah. That's what this is about. Well, sure enough, in verse 11, they do make him head and chief. Now look at our second point. Confidence in persecution from the outside. It doesn't get easier. At this point, Jephthah has a, a license to kill, as it were. An ancient Near Eastern license to kill. Go get these sons of Ammon. But he desires peace. And so in verse 12, he sends a message to the king and he says, what is between you and me that you have come to fight uh, against me for my land? What's, come on, can't can we just work this out? Can't we come to the table? And the king responds in verse 13 saying, you Israelites stole my land when you came up from Egypt. Now give it back. Accusation, no explanation. And in verse 14, Jephthah sends a very well-crafted letter that is very factual, but is also a bit stinging. If, if, if you could translate directly the Hebrew, he's responding with, yeah, that's fake news. Okay? You've been watching a little too much of the Canaanite news network. We didn't take your land, and we're not going to give it back. And he goes through and he explains all these facts. We don't have time to go through them all today, but let me read them to you, because it's, it's really, really clear. He says, first of all, when we, meaning the Israelites, were on our way from the promised land, God made it clear we were not to take land from the Edomites or the Moabites. Now, the Edomites, Edomites, Edom, from uh, Esau, that was another name for Esau, it was his descendants. And then Moab, 
was from the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. He says, the Edomites, the Moabites, leave them alone. They're cousins, okay? So you go to the promised land, but don't touch these two people groups. So when Moses came to their land, he asked for walking rights. Now, uh, we have Josh with us here today. Josh and Shane lived in Scotland for a while. There's an old uh, ancient laws of walking rights where you're allowed to walk uh, on your land, on other people's land, if you need to get to somewhere, meaning that the path supersedes the property. Well, in this case, God says the path supersedes the property. We're not going to take it from you, but let my two million people walk across them. So they asked for walking rights. But Edom and Moab said, no, I don't care that God gave us this land. You ain't coming through here. So Moses goes next door to the king of the Amorites, King Sihon. And he says, how about you? Can we walk across your land to get to ours? Not only did King Sihon say no, but then he attacks Israel. These are slaves. They make mud bricks. They just want to get to their land. Can I just, can I walk across your backyard? And they say no. And he attacks them. Now, history has taught us, even recent history, you don't attack Israel. You just don't do it. There's an interesting illustration. Some of you may be old enough to remember. May 15th, 1967. Israel's Independence Day, less than 20 years old, Egypt amasses 1,000 tanks and 100,000 soldiers on their southern border. Along with Jordan and Syria, all three countries plan to attack Israel and wipe them off the face of the map. On May 18th, this comes across the voice of the Arabs' radio. As of today, there no longer exists an international emergency force to protect Israel. We shall exercise patience no more. We shall not complain anymore to the UN about Israel. The sole method we shall apply against Israel is total war, which will result in the extermination of the Zionist existence. Arabs have a tendency to talk really, really loud when it comes to stuff. Do you know your history? Six days later, the U.S. had to step in to keep Israel from annihilating those three countries. Israel's enemies lost 20,000 soldiers. Israel lost less, less than 1,000. In that battle, they captured the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Fact check, the West Bank is not occupied territory. It was won fair and square against an aggressor in a battle. Fact checked again, there is no country of Palestine. Palestinians are not Palestinians. Palestinians are Jordanians, Egyptians, and Syrians. Those countries do not want their people back. You can cut this out of the tape if you'd like to, it's a fact. Prime Minister Rabin offered to give the land back to these countries. They don't want it. What they want is what the voice of the Arab radio said. They want complete annihilation of Israel. And I'm not trying to say that Israel is, you know, Christian or can't be touched. I'm just saying this is just a fact. Just be careful here. What do you think happened to go back 3,000 years to King Sihon and the Amorites when he attacked Israel unprovoked? Well, the text tells us they crushed him. Israel crushed him. And so he writes in this letter and he says, we didn't take your land. He says, we won it fair and square against an aggressor that attacked us. And by the way, here's some more facts. It was never Ammon's land. It was Amorite land. Learn to spell. He says, we took your land fairly in battle. Yahweh gave it to us. Look at verse 24. Don't you possess what Chemosh, your God, your God gives you to possess? Yahweh gave it to us. You take it up with him. He goes on to, others to say that in verse 25 that we had other enemies, but no one else has demanded this land back, and it's been ours for 300 years. This would be like 
Spain arguing about Florida. No, it's ours. I don't think we took that one fair and square, though, so just cut that up. And then finally he says, basically, you ever heard of adverse possession? You haven't said anything in 300 years. We didn't take it from you. We took it fair and square. Sue me. We're not doing it. In verse 28, the king disregards the message, which I had a little side note here. And isn't that what the world does to the gospel of reconciliation? They disregard the message. You go to them with a message of peace. And they said, no, we want war. But you know what? We were the same way. Ephesians 2, 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But it is amid the toughest persecution, after rejection, that the Holy Spirit does His best work. And He gives Jephthah the confidence that humanly he should not have. And yet He does. Look at verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord. If the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he was able to, amid rejection do mighty things with confidence, how much more should we be able to do the same? Because if you're a believer here today, from the moment of your salvation, you have been indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. He empowers you. If you are not feeling the confidence amid rejection, if you're not feeling the passion amid rejection, if you don't want to do the work of the Lord, it's not the Holy Spirit's fault or because you don't have enough of the Holy Spirit. It's because you're quenching Him. It's because you're grieving Him. It is in our weakness that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, does His greatest work. Who knew this better than the Apostle Paul? 2 Corinthians 12, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You say, I I understand that. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Do you feel that? Let your mind inform your emotion. It's a fact. That rejection was ordained by God, but you've been given the Spirit, the power of God, to do the work of God. Why are you licking your sores? Why are you crawling into a hole? Well, it feels that way. No, no, no. Let's go over it again. You see what I'm saying? I don't know how smart Jephthah was. I, I I don't get the sense he was a very bright guy. Okay? I I don't even get the sense that he was a super spiritual guy. I do get the sense that he understood some things clearly. That God had called him to a job. The rejection was not his own fault. And the Spirit of the Lord empowered him to do it. The Lord can do a lot with a man like that. The Lord can do a lot with a woman like that. And since the king of Ammon wouldn't accept mercy... He receives judgment. Verse 33 gives us the details. He struck them with a very great slaughter. Twenty cities. Now we get to our third point. Let's remember we're in the book of Judges by way of Hebrews, and these faith models are not even close to perfect. But then again, neither are we. Amen? Let's look at our third point. Carelessness and confidence. Back at verse 30, just before the battle. Jephthah, circle, made a vow. Made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my land, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. 
whoa, what, what, what just happened there? I mean, you're meant to go, why? Is this really necessary? What, what, what happened? Well, he got careless. He got sloppy. Confidence was great, but he got careless in his confidence. And, and this often happens when we unwittingly start to believe that we have a part in the victory and God is our helpmate instead of the other way around. Okay? That we are the ones who are causing it and God help me do this. No, 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 no. God just chose to use a crooked stick to strike a straight lick in this case. Jephthah. That, that's all that Jephthah was. He was a tool. And as you read this, you realize he's writing a check with his mouth that he's going to never want to cash. And you can, if this is a movie, you can hear the soundtrack change to an ominous tone. You know, you know the kind of movie where it's like something joyful is going on, but there's like moody, dark music in the background because you see this train wreck about to happen. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child because he had no son or daughter. Oh my goodness. Can you see this girl's coming out? Tambourines and streamers and she's dressed up and she's got stuff in her hair. Daddy's home. It's not, it's not the war hero's home. Oh, he may be a war hero, but he's her hero because he's daddy. And she's just excited to see him. And you're meant to go, ah, why? What a fool! Y'all feel that way? What a fool! Yes, but, but no. Let me explain. You see, in the ancient Near East, most of the homes had the stables on the first floor and the living quarters on the second floor. In his mind, God, I'm so excited about doing this. I'm willing to sacrifice my prized bull or my favorite goat. It never occurred to him that it would be his own daughter. Fun fact here, Mary and Joseph probably weren't in a stable like we think about her in a cave. They were probably on the bottom floor of a home. The stable is on the first floor. The, the second floor, the, tra the proper translation is guest room rather than inn. There was no room in the living quarters, the guest room, so therefore they had to stay in the stables. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of your little manger scene and replace it with a flat roof garage apartment, but you get the picture. And he sees her, he tears his clothes in verse 35. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. You're like my enemy because I have given my word to the Lord, and underline this, I cannot take it back. A vow to the Lord is a big deal. You don't just simply do what we do in this day and age. Oh, I didn't realize it was going to cost that much. Oh, I had no idea. Oh, you know, I should have thought differently. Well, next time. No, no, no. He knows enough to know the Mosaic law. Numbers 30. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, we may not make a lot of vows anymore, but most of us make one vow to the Lord in our life. What is it? I'll give you a hint. To have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You feel the weight? You feel the weight? We keep our vows. Amen? None of this. Well, this is too hard. Well, she's changed. Well, I'm not in love anymore. God wants me to be happy. No, we, we made a promise to Almighty God. We keep it. Jephthah knows that he has to do this. But you're saying, but he can't do this. This is, this is human sacrifice. This is, this is crazy. 
She responds so graciously in verse 36, My father, you have given your word. Literally, you have opened your mouth. You've got to do this. She is so kind. What does this mean? So did he sacrifice her? So I thought we'd just pick up here next week. That's okay. People start throwing stuff. (laughs) Look, commentators have been divided over this for millennia, so we want to approach it with a large dose of humility, but I'd like to show you what I think is the best understanding of what happened. Let me read for you the next few verses and see if it doesn't jump out at us. Verse 37, She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. Circle that. I and my companions. Then he said, go. And he sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains. Circle this, because of her virginity. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to the vow which he had made, And, circle this, she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Again, with trepidation and humility, I want to say, I personally don't think he sacrifices his daughter for these reasons. Jephthah at least knows his Bible enough to know that human sacrifice is abhorrent. He also knows the story of Abraham and Isaac and how it didn't happen, okay? No Israelite priest would have conducted such a ceremony. She weeps because of her virginity. Why would she want to be away from her family for two months if she was going to die? Verse 39 seems to explain this by joining and she had no relations with the man. The daughters of Israel would not have memorialized a human sacrifice. Women honor those just like men who choose a sacrificial life of chastity and devotion, not human sacrifice. And bottom line, I don't think Jephthah, with all of the, the flawed individuals in, in Hebrews chapter 11, would have ever made it into the hall of faith. I might be wrong, but I personally think that he dedicates her to temple service for her to spend the rest of her years serving in that capacity. But, but here's the question of the text, especially in relation framed by Hebrews chapter 11. How did this happen? If through the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the instrumentality of the pulpit, I'm trying to take us from... Don't be, don't, don't let your faith be weakened by rejection, but instead let it fuel you towards progression and, and towards passion for Christ and great commission work. And, and, and in the middle of this process, hey, be careful. Don't be careless. So in, in that light, how did this happen? How did he let this happen? How, how can we not let it happen with us? Because I, I don't want to say, great, I'm not in a hole anymore. I'm ready to serve you. And then I do something stupid that, that ruins my ministry. Or you do something stupid that ruins your ministry. I think it helps to understand how to prevent the carelessness, how to recognize the signs. And it usually goes something like this. When we start to feel confident, we start to get careless, and we mistakenly think... I got this. I got this, right? All right, God, you pointed me in the right direction. I got this. There's your first mistake right there. We start to believe that it is in our strength that we can do things. God's just our co-pilot, right? And it goes from I got this to, and here's the error, I will do this for you, and you will do this for me. Or I will do this for you if you do this for me. Uh Uh-oh. Okay? 
Instead, it should be, I will do this for you because you have already done for me. And if we want to avoid this carelessness and confidence, we got to go back. And the moment we hear in our head with that little voice, I got this, we need to immediately say, whoa, whoa, I repent. You got this. I don't got this. You got this. And that will help us not be careless. All right, let's do our last one here. Confidence in persecution from the inside. Chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphron and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Oh, wow, you're an ally, aren't you? Should be a little bit reminiscent of Gideon, right? These guys are glory hounds. We saw them from Gideon's battle. They don't care about the motherland. They don't care about her people. They care about themselves. They're like the Pharisees. They got all the entrappings of being an Israelite citizen, but their actions betray them. But you need to understand where Jephthah is. He has stood confidently amid rejection against the world. And now he comes home and he's faced with persecution from his own people. His own people. Will he bow the knee to the establishment? Will he reject the worthless rabble that stood with him and bow the knee to the establishment in order to save his own skin and gain favor? Because here's the thing. The Ephraimites like you. Everybody likes you. They're the popular ones. They're the big ones. They're the ones that are well-known. So he's saying, hey, you bow to me. You give us allegiance. And you reject the people who stood with you. Verse 2, he says, hey, I, I sent out the call to arms. You guys didn't come. So I took my life into my own hands. And he stands with the rabble. He stands with the worthless. And he does not bow the knee to Ephraim. And this is where the Ephraimites start to get nasty. Verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. Now you need to understand what, what the Ephraimites are, are calling Jephthah and his men. In calling them fugitives of Ephraim, they're calling them cowards. So you've got to remember that the people of Gilead are on the east side of the Jordan. You're looking this way. The east side of the Jordan, okay? It's kind of saying, hey, when we all arrived to conquer the, the promised land, you guys were too chicken to cross the Jordan and fight with us. You stayed home. You might be part of the clan, but you're cowards. You're fugitives. Now, there's some comic relief going on here. How dangerous is it to call Jephthah a fugitive? <laughs> Who had been run out before, right? That's like triggering, okay? He's going to be angry. So what happens? Well, he takes this fugitive name, fires people up, and they go and they win and they conquer. Verse 5, the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim, okay, the enemy, said, let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, they would say to him, say now, Shiboleth. But he said, Siboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. And they seized him and slew him at the fords of the river. And there fell that day 42 thousand of Ephraim. Now, let me explain what's going on here. It's like, it's like this. If you look at South America, you look at Latin America, Argentina was settled uh, by a lot of Italians, okay? Now, for those of us who speak Spanish, I'm trying to learn. We've got a lot of Spanish speakers here. When you have the double L, what does it sound like? Ya, okay? Yamar, yamando. ¿Quién está llamando? Who is calling? You call Latin America. ¿Quién está llamando? If you ask an Argentine to say llamando, he says chamando, because that's the way Italians pronounce a double L. Chamando. If you ask him to pronounce 
uh, chicken, pollo. He says, pollo. He can't pronounce it the same way. He can't pronounce it correctly, Martin the Peruvian would say, okay? So it's like this. It's like, it's like the Gileadites, Jephthah, standing at the fords there. And a guy comes and he says, are you an Argentine? Me? Oh, no. I'm Venezuelan. Okay, pass on through. Oh, hey, um, before you go, say chicken. Sure. Chicken. Killing. <laughs> and that's exactly what goes on. And it brings to mind Christ's words, right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So Jephthah, who was originally to be their savior, ended up being their judge. Let me bring this together here. Bottom line is Jephthah did not let rejection weaken his faith. He wasn't consumed with what even those who are near and dear to him thought. He was consumed about what one person thought, and it was God. He was consumed with it. And because he cared about God, he cared about God's people. And because he understood who God was, he understood that rejection was part and parcel of putting him on a new path, a new path in which he act, acted in confidence, and he acted in God's stead as a deliverer. And rather than let rejection cause him to crawl into a hole, he used it to strengthen his faith and have God work through him as a tool for his kingdom. Can we do the same? Amen?